So good morning, listeners, and welcome to Sacred Space 102 FM, which is a Come and See Inspirations production, being produced here in our Come and See studio here in Ada, and this, the 6th of September. It's the 23rd Sunday in Ordinary Time. My name is John Keeley, and help me to produce the, and present the programme this morning. In live, in studio, for the first time in a long time, Shane Ambrose, good morning to you, Shane, and good welcome to the studio. M- good morning, John. How are we going? It's good to be back in studio. Thanks a lot for joining me, Shane. We'll have a lot more of Shane inside the studio these days, guys, so hopefully things are going to be run as smoothly as they have for the last few years. But anyway, let's see where the Lord brings us. We, are supposed, uh, of course, also want to especially welcome our listeners who are housebound. Those who we meet, actually, um, throughout the week, who say how much they enjoy the programme, that's whether they're listening at 10 o'clock every Sunday morning, where these days, of course, we're broadcasting Mass from Abbeyfield Parish, or listening to our regular programme at 11pm of a Sunday night. Wherever you are, thanks a lot indeed for joining us. And just to remind people again, if you want to listen to the regular Sacred Space programme online, anywhere in the world, you can do so by logging into comeandseeinspirations.buzzspread.com or maybe Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or other platforms. But again, the most important thing is welcome and thanks Ladin, uh, thanks so much indeed for, for joining us. Um, as usual, our, our programme today will include Saints for the Week. And we thank indeed Shane for, again, going to bring us some saints from somewhere out in the world. We'll have to wait and see what he's got lined up for us. But just a, just a little notice or two that I just want to bring to people's attention. Uh, last week, of course, we started off um, with Sister Bride Cunahan giving us her story of moving from working in an ice cream company in Cork to, to South Africa. That was an 11pm programme. She continues that story with us tonight at 11pm. Also, just to, to let people know, um, tonight, 5 o'clock, Shane, we have a big thing happening. Yes. Uh, so people will remember we had a flying visit last week from an old friend of the programme. Lorraine Buckley was in uh, to help us last week uh, with the gospel reflection and herself and ourselves and John and Anne, we had a bit of a catch up. It was good to see her. Mm. Anyway, so this weekend at on Sunday at Vespers, which is evening prayer, Lorraine will receive the veil or will be clothed in the habit of the Dominican Sisters of St. Joseph in Lymington in the UK. And for anyone that wants to see it, that's actually available on churchservices.tv. And so the three of us, John, myself and and Anne, we'll be avidly watching it and uh, wishing Lorraine the best on the next step as she takes, she enters into the formal novitiate um, and the canonical year ahead of her uh, as she follows that particular Camino. So I know a a lot of listeners have been asking us uh, how is Lorraine getting on and where is she and so on and so forth. Well, you can see her in person, as Shane just said, churchservices.tv. Uh, just uh, search for Dominican Sisters of St. Joseph Lymington in UK, five o'clock um, this evening. Also, just to remind listeners again, you can contact us by text 87 or email cominsinspirations at gmail.com. So uh, maybe at this stage of the programme, Shane, Saints for the Week, please. Yes, John. Uh, Now, before I jump into the Saints of the Week, just two things to point out. From the 1st of September to the 4th of October, we're in the season of prayer for creation, which is a new thing that the Holy Father started a number of years ago with the Ecumenical Patriarch. And it's to promote the care of um, our environment and our awareness of all of that. 
And this year, they're in particular, they're marking the fifth year of the publication of the papal encyclical Laudato Si. Now, people might remember back in April, we had a programme with Jane Mellet from Trocra in relation to Laudato Si. So if you wanted to listen back to that just in terms of it, and there's a, quite a lot of stuff online in relation to it. Uh, and different places are doing different things um, in in relation to that for the next four weeks. The other thing just to mention to people is that um, <clears throat> next, sorry, not next, yes, next Sunday, uh, which is the 13th of September, is would have been or is the 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 grandparents' pilgrimage, the national grand pil- pil- grandparents' pilgrimage to knock. Now, I'm still not a hundred percent sure if it's actually physically happening. I don't think it is. I know. Uh, I don't think it is. No. Um, but uh, but the, the 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 shrine is is encouraging uh, both grandparents and grandchildren uh, to send their prayer intentions for the for the pilgrimage mass, which will be broadcast on the Knock Shrine website live webcam. And if you want to submit your prayer intention. So just it's info, I-N-F-O, at knockshrine.ie. So that's info at knockshrine.ie if you want to submit your prayer intentions. Now, sorry, John. Yeah. Sorry, just as you ran that, Shane, I know there, there is a prayer for, for, for grandparents. It's a rather long one, and as we're short of time today, um, I'll be sure that I'll pray that next week for all of us grandparents. No hassle. So in terms of Saints of the Week, I have to do a quick run through of it this time around, or John is going to have my have my head on a plate. Uh, so uh, Monday, the 7th of September, we sorry, first of all, we're in the 23rd Sunday in Ordinary Time. So we're entering into the 23rd week in Ordinary Time. For those of us praying the Psalter, we're on week three. Um, so and it's the weekday cycle two. So then on Monday uh, is the feast day of Saint Balan. Now for those of you, of course, who are anyway familiar with um, Lord of the Rings, yeah, that was one of the or the Hobbit rather. That was one of the dwarfs. But actually, no, the real Saint Balan. He was a seventh century English, born of seventh century English nobility, a brother of Saint Gerald, uh, worked with Coleman of Lindisfarne, worked lived for a bit in Iona. And eventually he set up a monastery in near Toome in Ireland. So that's what the Irish connection is. And his feast day is on Monday, the 7th of September. Tuesday, the 8th of September, of course, is the feast is the feast of the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Obviously, of course, very much <clears throat> links in with the, um, you know, the calendar wise, because the 8th of December is the Immaculate Conception. Uh, so by tradition, uh, the, the 8th of September is... Uh, is, is the feast day of the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary with Saint by from Saint Anne. <clears throat> of course, very much associated with the East and the Orthodox Church, as it ca- that particularly is a feast day that came from that part of the world to our own. Tuesday the 9th is the feast day of Saint Kieran of Clonmacnoise. So we're getting into the Irish calendar here. So Saint Kieran was born in Roscommon in 512 AD and founded Clonmacnoise around 545. And he died very young, actually, at the age of 33, while the monastery, of course, was being built. And, of course, Clonmacnoy is one of the great ecclesial cities of Europe uh, in the early uh, early hundreds of the, you know, the of the of before the year 1000, right up, of course, to the present day. It's a magnificent site for those that have visited. On Thursday the 10th, we have the feast day of St. Peter Claver. Now, for those of you that are listening internationally, that's obviously going to jar because... 
on the international calendar, Peter Claver's feast day is the 9th, but on the Irish calendar, is the feast day is on, is on the 10th of September. He's a Spanish saint associated with Catalonia. He was a Jesuit. And he went to Catagonia in Colombia and worked there for 33 years amongst the slaves until his death in 1654. Um, and he's said to have baptised more than 300,000 people. Now, you'd kind of wonder about that number. Maybe, possible. Friday the 11th is the feast day of Blessed Dominic Dillon. Uh, he's one of the Irish martyrs, um, Dominican priest, and he died. He was martyred in on the 11th of September, 1649, in Drogheda, in Loud. Uh, it's hard to believe, John, uh, we're almost down the bones of the 20th anniversary of 9-11 next year. Uh, wow. Yeah, you think about it that yeah, way, yeah, you know. Yeah. So then on Saturday the 12th, we have the feast day on the Irish calendar of St. Alva. St. Alva is associated very much as, um, he's regarded as one of the pre-patrician saints. That means he was in the time before St. Patrick, although the Irish annals note his death was in 528. Uh, founded a monastery at Emily. And which was an important monastery in Munster and a 9th century rule bears his name. In addition to that, um, the 12th of September is also the feast day of the holy name of Mary. So that's what we have, John, in terms of celestial guides for this week. Shane, thank you so much for that. So as usual, we'll pray our spiritual communion prayer and this is for those of us who can't receive Jesus in Holy Communion this morning. My Jesus, I desire to receive you into my soul. Since I cannot now receive you sacramentally, come spiritually into my soul. I embrace you as already there. I unite myself wholly to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. Amen. Now, of course, uh, again, as I mentioned at the start, we have the second part of our interview today with Sister Bride Cunhan. A rather long interview, so we'll only be taking uh, one particular break, uh, which will be after the reading of the Gospel. So we'll now continue on with reading and reflecting on the Sunday Gospel. So before reading and reflecting on the Gospel as usual, there's a prayer we always pray. And we'll ask Shane again to, to pray this prayer for us. Thanks, Shane. Lord, we thank you for putting us in the presence of your word, which you inspired in your prophets. May we approach this word reverently, attentively and humbly. May we not despise this word, but receive all it has to say to us. We know that our hearts are closed, often incapable of comprehending the simplicity of your word. Send your spirit to us so that receiving the word in truth and simplicity, our lives may be transformed by it. Let us not be resistant, Lord. May your word penetrate us like a two-edged sword. May our hearts be open to it. Let not our eyes be closed, nor our minds wander. May we give ourselves entirely to this listening. We ask this, Father, in union with Mary, who used to recite the Psalms through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks for that, Shane. So the Gospel for today is again from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verse 15 to 20. Jesus said to his disciples, If your brother does something wrong, go and have it out with him alone, between your two cells. If he listens to you, you've won back your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. The evidence of two or three witnesses is required to sustain any charge. But if he refuses to listen to these, report it to the community. And if he refuses to listen to the community, treat him like a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you solemnly, whatever you bound on earth shall be considered bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be considered loose in heaven. I tell you solemnly once again, if two of you on earth agree to ask anything at all, it will be granted to you by my Father in heaven. For where two and three meet in my name, 
I shall be there with you. So that's the Gospel for this week, the Gospel of Matthew. Only got a short bit of time left, maybe a thought or two, Shine, maybe a thought? Um, yeah, not the easiest Gospel in the world, I suppose, uh, to read through, particularly in a very short period of time as we have this morning, John. Um, and one of the issues, of course, with it is um, we're actually missing the next part, part of it, which is uh, verse 21, which I think is an important um, sequel to this particular gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's an interesting one. Um, if your brother does something wrong, go and have it out with him. Um, it's interesting. It doesn't mean it doesn't have to do something to you. That's right. You know, um, and then it's kind of how you try to win your brother back or your sister, as the case might be. Mm. I suppose the thing about it is this Sunday's Gospels talks to us about relationships and trying to maintain the sense of community um, with those with those around us um, and how we are supposed to engage and try always, like the Good Shepherd, to seek to bring back those who may have, you know, Mm, slipped outside the fold. I think it's an interesting gospel in the context of political things that have happened in the last few weeks um, and the the mob mentality that can sometimes arise when a person um, makes a mistake or Mm -hmm. whatever the case might be. And it's just an interesting one for us to reflect on this Sunday. Um, then again, the second part of that gospel is, um, I suppose, the idea of binding on earth and being bound in heaven. Um, that very much the church has understood in terms of its authority, particularly over the, over confession, actually, is where that comes from. Um, but then the third part of it, I think, for me this Sunday, John, is a key thing for us in these COVID times. And it is that thing, that issue of where two or three are gathered are, I tell you something, if two of you are to greet ants anting, it will be granted to you by my Father in heaven. And where two or three meet in my name, I shall be there with them. And I think for us, for me this Sunday, John, that's the thing we need to take away in this pandemic time. That while that need and that reminder to us that when we gather as a domestic church, as we gather as a family church, uh, while it's not as perfect as gathering in the wider community, mm. it's still as valid that we're, because Jesus has told us we're two or three are gathered in his name, he's there amongst us. And it's when we are gathered like that in his name that we can ask God for our help and assistance because that's the promise that has been given us. Good point, Shane. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. So join us again in, in, in part two where Sister Bride Cunahan continues to share with us her journey uh, through South America. Listen to the Lord every step of the way as she's asked to to meet and to work with various people. Um, the last part of the program, the, the last section, is where she mentions about her work that she's currently involved with in Madagascar, especially helping those who are struggling so much these days with the various issues that they have in that part of the world. So this week we are broadcasting part two of my interview with Sister Bride Coonan. Last week we heard that God was becoming more active in her life. So let's listen again to Sister Bride continue her story with us. Then God became very active again in my life through ordinary circumstances. One day I was reading the newspaper and I got a letter from two sisters in Chile. They were the presentation order. And they wanted to come and make a foundation in Brazil. So I said to the medical missionary sisters, you know, they're looking for help. They want us to take them to some poor places where they could set up a mission. I said, what do you think we should do? Where should we take them? 
So one of the sisters produced the newspaper of that very week where there was a big article about a place called Umburanas, which had been designated as the least developed municipal area of the 415 municipal areas of the state. Now, that's something that happened every year. The government would, through their research, they would declare such a place as the least developed. So they said to me, you can't go too wrong by taking them to this Mm, place. mm. So then we had to look and say, well, where is this place? And lo and behold, we discovered, John, that this place was actually in our diocese. But we had never heard of it because nobody from that place ever came to any meeting of the diocese that we went to. No, And, And the way the church operated in the diocese, there were many meetings that each parish would attend but we had never met anybody from this place or never even heard of it. Mm -hmm. So we found it out and we went there. The sisters came, we invited them to come for a week and we took them out there. So my gosh, that was an eye opener because even though it was pretty poor where we were, this place was really out in the sticks and there were no priests, no sisters, no lay missionaries, nobody working out there. So I was only there in my capacity as a driver I was driving the sisters Mm -hmm. and we had got some contacts that set up a meeting. So on that day that we arrived there with the two sisters, there was about 20 people gathered in this very poor little church that they had. And so the conversation began back and forth. We were the medical missionary sister, Terry and myself, we were translating because those sisters spoke Mm -hmm. Spanish, not Mm -hmm. Portuguese. Mm So back and forth and back and forth went the conversation. The presentation sisters were telling the people what they were looking for and they were asking the people what they were looking for. And so I'm sitting there listening to all this and the people are saying, you know, the really, really basic thing we need is we need people to come here to live here with us. Because they said every year a group of missionaries, priests, lay people, come here and they put on a mission and we're all energized and then they're gone and within a few weeks everything falls flat Mm. because we don't know how to organize ourselves to do to continue the things that we want to continue Uh so i was listening to this and i will really say to you john that i had an experience like the disciples on the road to emos i felt that you know my heart burned within me as I listened to the people telling their stories. And I thought, holy God, this now is really something. I I felt very, very moved by the whole thing and very drawn to it in the sense that I could see, God, maybe this is where I should be. Mm-hmm. Because where, where I am with the medical missionaries is very needy. But after a few years and the sisters working there longer term, there was a certain amount of development, mm. but here was nothing at all. And all, all the people were asking was, was for you to go and live there. They didn't say, we wanted to build a school, we wanted to build a hospital, we wanted to build a church. No, they didn't say anything like that. They just said, we want you to come and live with us. So those words really haunted me when I went back to the medical missionaries. Mm-hmm. They really haunted me. We want people, we want you to come and live with us. So 
that began my journey of looking more closely at this place, which was actually only three hours by road from where I lived, although we had never heard of the place. Yes. Mm. So I talked to our own congregation and they said, well, look, you know, we're all getting old. There's nobody available to go, but we'll give you any support if you can find others to go. So I began then, there's a, every year you have a meeting of all the religious congregations. So I asked if I could speak at the meeting about this place and what was needed. So we went to the capital and you had a couple of hundred religious there for this big assembly. That happened once a year, all the congregations, all the members flocked in and we had, we used to have great assemblies. They were absolutely marvelous. So anyway, I got my slot and I talked about this place and I put out the invitation. I said, look, we want to go to this place, but we do not have many sisters, but we would be very interested in an intercongregational development. So various sisters came afterwards and they thought it was very needy and very everything. But the same story with everybody like ourselves in Ireland, they didn't have any sisters. So I said to the Lord, well, now, Lord, what's going to happen? There are no sisters. But true to, God, true to form, God was not deaf to the cries of the people. And so this woman contacted me because she heard about all of this. A woman by the name of Cecilia, a Brazilian woman. And she said, you know, she said, I belong to a group of lay missionaries. And she said, we have studied over four years to be lay missionaries, but we're all working in our own parishes. And she said, we have often thought that the missionary call really requires us to go out beyond our own frontiers, to go to some place more needy than our own place. And she said, we are very interested in what you're talking about. So fast forward, John, another maybe six months or 12 months, I can't remember, that was how I ended up going to live in Umburanas with, in the beginning, just one lay missionary from that group, a woman called Marconina. So the two of us arrived back in the place. Now we, we, we well, I should have said, of course, first of all, that the presentation sisters wrote back to say that for various reasons of their own, they couldn't come. So that's then when I started uh, trying to see, well, can somebody else come? So I went back to live there with one lay missionary. And that was the start of an 11 year journey where I lived with these lay missionaries, plus over the years, some Irish lay missionaries that we got to come. And we had one Brazilian couple with their little boy who were extraordinary because they gave a commitment for seven years most of the other lay missionaries, they came for two years or for three years. But this married couple, because the man had done the training for the lay missionaries, they came with their little boy of three and they stayed for seven years. So over the following 11 years, that's how I began my mission in Umburanas. That's a long way from sitting at the desk. <laughs> in the ice cream parlor place, doesn't the it Lord sure work? Is. Doesn't the Lord work in some? And, and I, I couldn't help but but think of um, when you were speaking there, the, the words that came to me, and actually you quoted them. 
I come to give you life and life in the fullness. And he's certainly there with you sitting by your desk. Is this what it's all about? Oh, he heard you. Yeah, okay. he sure did. So you you know at this stage now you've been you've been out in Brazil now for how how many years did you say eleven years? I was all to, all together seventeen years. Seventeen years. And then what happened? When I was when I was in Brazil for eleven years, it was all in partnership with the Slay Missionary Group. So after ten years, they decided that for all their own reasons that they wouldn't be able to send any more lay missionaries after the following year. So that kind of set me questioning then, because I thought, you know, we're here 11 years. This mission was always conceived of as a community mission. I never conceived of it as something that I would do on my own. It was always with other missionaries. So I thought if my if my partner group are going to go away, maybe that's the sign to me that we have fulfilled our mission in this place. And so began a discernment process to see if the time was right that we would both, the Malay Missionary Group and ourselves as a congregation, that we would take the steps towards handing everything over to the local people. And that is what we did. We we spent the final year preparing the local people in the two organisations that we had helped to set up. We spent the final year preparing them to take over a project which had now developed. I didn't tell you what we were doing there for the 11 years because you'd want another day on your programme. <laughs> but, you know, there were a lot of a lot of things had developed that would need a, that would need organisation. And they were all developed with the local people. So the happy part was that there were people there to whom we could hand over the things. So that was how the, at that time when the congregation knew that this was happening, they said to me, well, maybe would you consider coming back to Ireland to do fundraising for this, this mission that you've been involved in, plus other ones that we have in Colombia, Peru, Madagascar, and Argentina that we had that time. So it seemed right that if my partner organization was going away, that it was right that we all would go. And just just one thing now, just before we leave that, how well were you received by the, by the group of people that you went to there in Brazil, that first mission where nobody else was based? How were you yes. received? Yeah. I suppose they really didn't know what to make of us, John, yeah. because, uh, like, it was a very traditional place. Yeah. Like, you talk about Vatican II, yeah. but Vatican II hadn't arrived at all yeah, in this okay. place. Mm, okay. You know, we okay. were still kind of pre-Vatican II. Mm, okay. So, talk about basic Christian communities, that hadn't arrived there at all. So, the people sort of, they didn't know what to make of us, really. Uh, like I was dressed in the same way that the lay missionary was dressed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people kind of found this hard to understand. You know, their idea of nuns were, you know, convents and yep. habits and all of that. Yep. Yep. So little bit by little bit, what really helped was that we didn't do anything at all for the first year. We said we we're just going to get to know the people and listen to what they're talking about and what they see as the most urgent needs. 
and that's what we did you know little bit th that original group that we had met they were what they'd call the senoras of the church they were like what you have in every parish you have this very dedicated group of older people yes. who gravitate around the church mm. and they were they were keeping that little church alive even though they had never had a priest the bishop god rest him used to go there at Christmas and Easter to celebrate Mass. That was the place he used to go because there was no priest. So they were very grateful that we were there, but they kind of didn't quite know what we were there for. So in the beginning, they would ask us to do all the things. You know, if somebody died, could you do the funeral? Mm -hmm. But before we ever went there, they were doing the funerals. So we said, listen, we'll go with you but you keep doing what you were always doing because we didn't come to take over from you. We came to kind of help you to do what you can't reach on. So little bit by little bit, then like we got to know, you see, working in the community, uh, you don't know, there are, there were seven churches in the town. Now you're talking about a small town of 16,000 people, but there were seven religions mm. and the Catholic one was one of the smallest ones. And it was also the one that was most closely identified with the poorest people. Now, as we got to know people, people were belonging to churches. And so, you know, at Christmas time, we'd get an invitation to go to the Baptist church, let's say, for their mission. And, of course, I went because we were invited. And, you know, it was a nice ecumenical gesture in a place where ecumenism really hadn't arrived at all because they were all very separate. And the people kind of didn't understand this. Why was I going to the Baptist church? So, we, you know, it took a good while for people to understand about ecumenism. Then when in the very early time, there was a big calamity because a very bad storm came and several houses, which were only very fragile houses, they were literally, the walls were knocked down. So people came to say that their houses had been knocked down mm -hmm. and could we help? So we looked and we said, well, surely the, the town hall has to have something to do with this. You know, they can't be expecting just that a foreign country is going to come in when they have a crisis. They have to try and do something for themselves. So we went to the town hall with the local people, the people who came looking for the help. We said, come on, mm -hmm. we'll go to the town hall. And they said, no, 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 there'll be no use. They're not going to hear us and they're not going to do anything for us. But we said, come on and we'll go. So the first day we couldn't even see anybody that we wanted to see. So we said, OK, we'll come again tomorrow. Second day we did get to see somebody. And the man kind of looked at us and said, well, you know, that's too bad. That has happened. But we don't have any money for that kind of thing. This is the, the man now in the town hall. He was supposed to be like whatever social outreach. Mm. So we said to him, well, how about we go 50-50 in this? How about you help some of the people and we will help some? So he kind of brightened up at that suggestion. So I said, OK, let's make a list of all who need either. Well, it was really a reforming of the houses because the houses were so poor. You could build a wall and then preserve the other walls. Mm. So we said, how about you making out a list and we'll half, we'll go half and half. And that's what we did. We went down through the list, one for you, one for me. But you see, what I didn't know was that that man was what they call a crenshaw, 
which is a believer of another church. So he's kind of open-mouthed with the thoughts that the Catholics are going to work with him because this never happened. The Catholics kind of didn't mix at all with the other churches mm -hmm. and the other churches didn't mix with Catholics. So that was another thing, John, to answer your question, how were we received? People kind of couldn't understand that, that we were going up into that very poor street and we weren't asking anybody what they're Catholics and we were going up there and we were helping them to rebuild their houses. They couldn't understand. And a woman came to me and she said, oh, my neighbours are all very angry with me because they said, now I'm going to become a Catholic. And she said to them, why are they saying that? She, she said to them, why do you think that? And they said, sure, the nun is helping you. And of course she's going to tell you now that you must start going to their church. Mm. So I said, listen, no, it doesn't work like that at all. That's a different story altogether. You know, we're here to do the work of the gospel, to reach out to the needy person. So that kind of was another big revelation that really, you know, the, the gospel message is for everybody. So those kind of things in the beginning, John, people found them difficult to understand. But I mean, fast forward down 11 years, we did a lot of work in those intervening years. When I say we, it was principally the lay missionaries, the Brazilian ones, because they were very they were very trained in the basic Christian community movement. So they did a lot of work that helped the people to understand much more what, what this whole thing was all about. And like the project that's there today now, that we're still supporting as a congregation, even though I'm six years gone out of there, we're still supporting them financially. And they're carrying ahead the things themselves because we have tried to inculcate that spirit that the gospel call is for everybody. And while we were the missionaries from afar, the people are the missionaries locally who have to reach out and help the others. You certainly haven't been bored anyway. You, you certainly have not been bored. So it, it came to the time, as you said, when you, you came to return home. Uh, yes, I got the suggestion of the congregation was that I would take up this work of fundraising for the missions. Now, my thought at that time was, you remember I said that the lay missionary organization had said that they couldn't send anybody the following year mm -hmm. because they at by this time, John, by 11 years down the road, various ones had gone to other places like Umburanas yeah. to, to go out from their own native parish. Mm -hmm. So they had other missions at this stage that they had to support. So my thought was, well, if they can't come here and we're thinking that we should, it's time to hand over to the local people, then maybe I would join in one of their missions for a few years. And I actually did go to visit one of their missions that I thought, yeah, I could see myself here working with them. But anyway, when the congregation request came to know would I consider this job, I thought, well, maybe, you know, I'm getting older. Maybe it is time to go home and I can still support this work from Ireland. So... Sister Bree, can I just ask you a question there? You're still a member of your original organised um, congregation all the time. Oh, I belong to the Little Sisters of the Assumption and I live now with five of them here in Cork. Right, but I mean, so, but when you were out in Brazil there, in that community by yourself, um, I mean, 
if the little sisters of the Assumption needed you, you, you might have had to have moved out of there and moved back to the work they wanted. I would, John, theoretically. Hmm. But from the very beginning, the congregation gave me the support to do this. Okay. And what they said was, we will support you, which they did. And they said, just remember that the support, it could be financial, it could be anything else, but it will stop short at people. Because if you go, there will not be any other sister to go after you. Okay. You just remember that. Okay. You can you can find people to work and live with as a missionary, but don't expect us to send any more sisters because we don't have them. Okay. But I knew that anyway, John. I, no. I kind of knew that, you know. But I could never have done it without the support of the congregation. No. Because the congregation were fantastically supportive. So um, the, the Lord had more work for you to do, and that work entailed coming back to Ireland and... How did that work out? What was involved there? Well, now, that's a whole a whole different thing because for all the years that I was involved overseas in Brazil, I was linked with the... There's a, a programme in Ireland called the Irish Aid Programme, which is the Irish government's outreach to the developing world. And so I targeted that organization when I came back to Ireland. Because as you might know, John, every government in the developed world, so to speak, has a commitment to contribute 0.07% of their gross national product, their income, to overseas development. Mm -hmm. And that was, a that was a commitment after the Second World War with the rebuilding of Europe all these countries got together and, jo and jointly they financed the rebuilding of Europe after the Second World War. And when that was done, then they said, well, now we should turn our attention to the south of the world. And so that's where the United Nations began to look at the south of the world. And with the collaboration of all these countries who contributed this percentage every year from their income, there are now a lot of works going on in the South. So I targeted into this when I came back and a lot of the funding that I get now is through this, what we call grant writing. Mm. Now, when you get these grants, which are all very bureaucratic, you only get three quarters of the grant. You know, if, if supposing you need 10,000 euros to build a preschool, you will ever only get three quarters, you'll only get 7,500. Mm -hmm. And so you have to raise the other 2,500 yourself. So I got into this because it seemed to me something that would be very appealing to donors that for every, you know, for that 25%, it would mean that for every one euro that somebody contributed, I could convert it into four euros if I could get some of these 75% grants. And so that's what I've been doing, John. I've been fundraising actively in Ireland for the last six years and raising these 25% to help to supplement this, the three-quarter percent of the, of the grants that I get. I don't know, does that sound very It does, it does, it does. And some of, that, some of that fundraising goes to help countries, obviously, that can't take care of themselves. And I believe more recently... You were in Madag Madag Madagascar? Madagascar? Yeah. Can you tell no, me about Madagascar? Oh, Lord. 
Madagascar, John, is an extremely poor country. Madagascar has 70% of its population in poverty. That means that the, the whole country doesn't have the infrastructure. And there's a kind of a rating of all the countries of the world. And Madagascar is one of the least developed. And of all the countries that we are in, it is the poorest. Because 70% are officially under the poverty line. So, you know, you, you really couldn't imagine, even though Brazil and the semi-desert and all of that was very poor, Madagascar was even poorer. It really is because they don't have the infrastructure. Now, I, when I went there, I, I had been supporting projects there for the past three years. We have two very, very good projects there. One is a health project where our sisters set up a health centre. They've just bought a house and started working in it. And a, there was no health centre in this area of a, of a big city. And on the far side of the town, the sisters have an education project where they're doing fantastic education with children. Now, I could go in a little bit more in detail if you'd like to hear a little bit more about those. Yeah, yeah, please, why not? Okay. So one of the things that I discovered when I went to visit the health centre, which I had been supporting for the last three years without ever seeing it, was that, my gosh, a, here was a whole big neighbourhood that had no health service. So I saw at first hand the distance that sick people had to go to get to a hospital. Now, the hospital was a long ways away. There's no public transport. So if you don't have transport or if you can't afford to get someone to take you, you have to walk. And it was a long ways, a few kilometres to find this public hospital. Then when you get there, every single thing in that hospital, John, you have to pay for. From the time you put your foot inside the door, you have to pay for every tablet that you get. You have to, you have, to have someone to give you your meals, so your family has to bring in your food. And the worst thing of all, if you die, you are charged by the length of time that your body is left in the hospital before your family can come and get you. Wow. So there is no such thing as free health no such thing. Every iota. And that's now the public hospital, but everything has to be paid for. So that was one of the reasons why the congregation bought a house. And the, the sister who's running it is a nurse and a midwife. She's a missionary there from the island of Tonga, a little sister of the Assumption. And she's there with a small group of sisters from France and from Brazil, who are all missionaries working in this health centre. So you can see the great need because they started, we were started helping them in 2017. Then in 2018, they had 1,606 patients. And by the end of 2019, the number had gone up to 4,627. So like you had a threefold increase because the people had no other, no other help. So that was pretty awful. Now, you, I'm at a meeting with UNICEF, and they told me that over 40% of the children under five in Madagascar have stunted growth. Right. Now, like, when you think of it, yeah. children under five, nearly half of the whole of them have stunted growth. And, like, Madagascar is officially one of the highest rates of chronic malnutrition in the whole world. 
it really is very bad. So one of the things I'm trying to help in Madagascar now at the moment, I was actually on the WhatsApp earlier today with that sister in, in Madagascar because we're trying to get money for the this crisis of the COVID-19 because what they're finding is that the people don't understand what the virus is. It, unfortunately, John, since I was there, it has come to their city. Just one person so far has died. But as you know, once it has, you see, this place that I was in is way, way, way in the distant, you know, it's a way, way down south. Mm -hmm. It was, it took me almost 12 hours by road on a bad road in a kind of a, a what would you call it, a kind of a communal taxi. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about a place that's a long way from the capital. Mm. Now, they're really very badly, badly situated, but the virus has reached them, unfortunately. So they're trying to gather funding because they need to buy the protective equipment. They don't probably hear so much about here, the PPE. Yes. For themselves and for the other two centres that they work with in other parts of the city, they also need it. And also then they need to get very basic hygiene supplies for people, for families, and they need to get food supplies because while food is not something normally that we would be very involved in giving out, at the same time, what they say about many of these countries, John, is that it won't be the virus that will kill them. The people will die from hunger because most of them die, most of them live on the informal economy. That means that they go out every day, they do something on the street, they sell something or they're doing something, getting paid by somebody for something. But it's very much day to day living. There really is no savings and there's no fallback. So if they can't go out to work on the street, to sell whatever, you know, very often they cook food in their home and they bring it out onto the street to sell it to other people. If there's nobody on the street because of the, the isolation, the curfews, and if they can't go out on the street, mm. then that is producing already in all of our projects, several of them that I've been on to these days, that's producing a huge problem of lack of food because people haven't the money to, to go and buy food. And tell me, sister, can we do anything this part of the world in Ireland to help you out in that effort? Oh, absolutely. And people have been fantastically generous, John. I have to say that the people of Ireland have been fantastically generous. Uh, I have a very good fundraising committee in Cork and I have very supportive friends in Limerick. So what people do is that I, I give around the bank account number that is specifically for this fundraising work. This account is not used in any way by the congregation. It's used solely for my fundraising work. So any money that anyone wants to donate can go straight. It can go either into that Bank of Ireland fund or it can come straight to me here in Cork. And how would they contact yourself, Sister? Uh, I can tell you now, I live in Blackpool and I can give you my address. It's very simple. It's 32 St. Francis Gardens, okay. Blackpool, Cork. Okay. And then my phone number is 087 
0505-057-8249. And then my email is my own name, B-R-I-G-E, bride, dot, Cunahan, C-O-U-N-I-H-A-N, at gmail.com. So I do know, John, that things are very bad for many people in Ireland and they are likely to get worse. I do know that. And I also know that in terms of uh, fundraising, uh, people in Ireland in the recent years have had kind of questions about the money given to charity and whether it ever really reaches the poor. And unfortunately, you know, in the charity sector, we've had some stories that were less than encouraging. Mm. But all I can say to you is that you can be certain, I can say to your listeners, that any donation, big or small, that is given to this fund will reach the people who need it because we are working directly through our own sisters who are there on the ground. And I send the money directly to them. So there is no difficulty of anybody feeling that their money is going to a big black hole and it will never reach the people because it will. I can give you that assurance, John. Thanks. Thanks for that, Red. Just going back over over your your whole story there now, it's it's been a a beautiful walk with the Lord. Uh, Certainly a, a few times you mentioned that you spoke with the Lord and he certainly answered you. You certainly give the strength to carry on. Um, I, I suppose just to sum up your own vocation and your own journey with the Lord, how, how would you sum it all up, Brid? I would say that it's very important for any young person that's searching for the vo- their vocation to listen to what they might think is God's spirit within their own hearts. For example, I gave you a few examples there, John. I said at one point that when I listened to those people in Uburana's it was like my heart, that something was burning within me as I listened. Now, also when I was sitting in my office in Cork with Marvel Ice Cream, I felt this question rising up. Is this all there is to life? Is this it? And I think God puts into the heart of every young person who is searching for a way of life. Those desires, God puts those desires in our hearts But you just need to take a little bit of quiet, a little bit of silence, a little bit of mindfulness, just to tune into what's going on within your own self. And you might feel that there is some restlessness there. There is something that you can't quite figure that is kind of making you a bit uh, bit searching. So my suggestion then would be that if that is true for some young person, that they would look for a spiritual guide. That can be a priest, it can be a sister, it can be a lay person. There are many people nowadays, John, many lay people who are in this work of spiritual guidance or spiritual direction. And that is something that will help the person to see, is God really calling me to some kind of a religious vocation? Because most people are called to the single life or to the religious life, to the married life, but a small number are called to this way of life which is totally gospel based it's living the gospel in a particular way and i suppose you might have heard john of what we call the three vows people don't maybe often speak about them 
but they are the basis of our commitment to God, like the married people take vows to each other. And we have three vows, which maybe the names of them are a little bit misleading because the names come from an old language, but the meaning of them is very important to us. For example, we talk about the vow of poverty. And when we talk about that, what we mean really is a commitment to share our lives with others in a spirit of service and to live in a free, simple and trusting way. So that means we try to be countercultural in the culture that tells you that it's all about acquiring more, having, you know, more things and more things and more cars and more property and more whatever. We try to go against that by choosing to have a simple lifestyle and to share ourselves with others in service. That is very important for the vow of poverty. Then we talk about the vow of chastity. And that by the vow of chastity, we mean that we commit ourselves to continue always to keep our hearts open to the call of God to love. Because that kind of stirring in your heart is really the call of God. Now, you can close your heart to it, or you can open your heart to it in love. And that is what our commitment is, that we try to open our hearts in love to this call of God that manifests itself in every day, and to live that call of love in a joyful and loving way. No point, John, in going around with a long face if you're supposed to be a person that's claiming to be in love with the Lord and that you are committed to this way of living the vow of chastity. And then lastly, we talk about the vow of obedience. And that's uh, probably another misnomer because the word obey comes from the Latin word, which is translated as to hear. It's interesting. It's not to do, it's to hear. And what we mean by the vow of obedience taken by religious nowadays is that we continue to search for the will of God in our own lives, in the congregation, and in the world around us. And we do know very clearly at one level what the will of God is if we listen in an opening and listening way, because Jesus has already given us the total blueprint in the Gospels. He has told us there the will of God, how to live, the Beatitudes tell it all to us. So that's our vow of obedience that collectively, as a group, we commit ourselves to living this will of God. And for us as a congregation, it would be particularly with reference to families and to the poor. Sister, Sister Bree, thank you so much for, for taking so much time out to tell us that wonderful story, your, your journey with the Lord over all those years. It's so encouraging, and we do, we, we do hope that whoever's listening to this programme this morning We'll get something from it. We'll just listen to the Lord as you did. They mightn't be going over the Andes on the bus and, and asking the Lord, and but we'll be somewhere on the journey. Thank you so much, and may the Lord continue to give the strength and the courage and the faith to continue the work you're doing. God bless you now. Thank you very much, John. Thank you. Just to advise listeners that my whole interview with Miss Sister Bride Coonan is now available to be heard on our podcast page, Comments and Inspirations at budspread.com. My name is John Keeley. Thanks for listening. God bless now. So to finish the broadcast this morning, we'll play Sister Bride's uh, choice of music. It's 
I Dreamed a Dream by sung by Susan Boyle. Excuse 